my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair, it's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. So that was the original vision, Bob. I mean, I worked at Sarches. I was in the hot house, just like Harvard Business School would be in the hot house. And really, you describe Sarches as being one of the largest advertising agencies in the world with the brothers, with Morrison, Charles, with what was then called wire and plastic products. We were trying to emulate that. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman, and welcome to another episode of Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. Today, we have someone who built the biggest advertising holding company in the world, and one that fully embodied both math and magic. And he started it all with a tiny wire basket company, one of the great media and advertising entrepreneurs of all time, Sir Martin Sorrell. Sir Martin grew up in London, educated at both Cambridge and Harvard, where he got his MBA. He had a great career in advertising before he struck out on his own, creating WPP. 
He was the star financial wizard behind Saatchi and Saatchi, which during his tenure became one of the biggest ad agencies in the world. He worked with legendary sports agent Mark McCormick. And he also covered the 1964 Democratic Convention in Atlantic City for a school newspaper. Most important, he has keen insights, strong opinions, and is not shy about sharing them. Welcome, Sir Martin. Delighted to be with you. You know, you have had your own front row seat for history in the advertising business. There are very few people who have the perspective you do. But first, I want to do a little feature, which is exploring you in 60 seconds. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Do you prefer London or New York? I would offend so many people by saying one or the other. I like them both. Cricket or rugby? Cricket. Cambridge, England or Cambridge, Massachusetts? Cambridge, Massachusetts. Sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Beach or mountains? Beach. Spring or fall? Spring. Call or text? Text. Jazz or blues? Jazz. David Ogilvy or Don Draper? David Ogilvy. <laughs> smartest person you know? Well, the smartest person I did know was my dad. Favorite film? Barry Lyndon. First job? A salesman for my father in one of his radio and electrical stores. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? To be even faster in terms of response. Ooh, that's impressive. By the way, you are very impressive with how quickly you do respond <laughs> to emails anytime I reach out. Bob Pittman, you're a schmoozy. Yeah, exactly. So let's jump into where you and I met. I think the year was 1987. You were just beginning right. to put together this enormous company, WPP, and you owned about almost 5% of J. Walter Thompson. I had a group. We owned about 5% of J. Walter Thompson. I think someone, I and mean, I forgot who it was, said, okay, it's clear you guys are trying to do a, a takeover of JWT. So is Martin Sorrell. You guys should meet. And so we set up a meeting with Lou Wasserman, Sid Scheinberg, who ran MCA, who were my partners, you and a couple right. of folks. You said, you know, we could do this together. Uh, you do all that creative stuff you want to do, but I'll do the financial and structure. Now, I've never asked you this. Was that really true, or were you just trying to get us in? Well, Bruce Wasserstein said to me, we actually owned, I think, 8%. We bought in the market 8% of JWT. And Bruce said to me, go and find out what they're thinking of doing. So Robert Lowell, who's our CFO, and I, we walked down. <laughs> Got to get this into perspective. So Robert Lowell and I have been working on wire and plastic products for a, a, a year or so. We started in 85, 86, and this was the middle of 87. And here we were in New York. We made our first deal in, in America, which was a small real estate advertising agency. And we were walking down Madison Avenue, wherever it was, and we were walking into this building, this huge building, and we were shown into your office where you were with Sid Scheinberg. And I always remember we started to talk about a deal or work together with you. And I was there, as Bruce suggested, to try and find out the most that I could about what your intentions were or what they were. And I remember Sid Scheinberg at some stage slightly raising his voice and saying to me, but Sorrel or Martin, whatever he called me, you haven't even been elected yet and you, you know he was implying that I was almost acting as though we own JWT already and it was very funny and I left the room with Robert Lowell and as we got to the elevator I remember saying to Robert well I forgot to ask them something and I went back into the room I don't know whether you remember this and I stuck my head round the door and I said by the way one thing I forgot to ask you what 
sort of price do you have in mind? Because we were talking about doing some form of joint deal and you never responded with a price. And I walked away and I said, thank you very much. I came away from that meeting thinking that you weren't serious. I was there to try and find out whether you were a potentially competitive bid. My feeling from the meeting was that you weren't you know, 100% there. Now, I might have been totally wrong. You have to tell me what the truth was. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we started buying the stock, as I recall, somewhere in the 20s, and it got up into the 50s by the time the deal was done. And I think you, I think, had a better idea of all the assets. What we missed was that there was that Tokyo real estate that was about a third (laughs) of the value of the company. And I think had we known that, we would have been more eager to go ahead but at $50 a share, we started saying, you know, we've got a nice profit here. But it was fascinating. And of course, I was interested in it because of the media transformation going on at the time with this new technology called cable. And the, the advertising was available there. And I thought I knew something that the rest of the world didn't really understand, having come out of MTV Networks. Of course, you had a much bigger vision of what you had in store. So tell me when you were putting this together and you had this vision Give me just two seconds on what the original vision was for WPP. I mean, there's no way you could have understood or thought it was going to be as big as it actually turned out to be. If you go to the original document, it says our objective was to build a major multinational marketing services firm. So that was the original vision, Bob. I mean, I worked at Sarches. I was in the hot house. I remember Bruce Wasserstein saying to me that Sarches was a hot house, just like Harvard Business School would be in a hot house. And Really, you describe such as being one of the largest advertising agencies or holding companies. I think at one stage it was the largest in the world with the brothers, with Morris and Charles. And we were trying to emulate that with what was then called wire and plastic products. We didn't know, as you suggest, that we would grow so, so significantly and we would make such an impact as we did. But, you know, we were very ambitious. And just like with S4, which is our new digital vehicle that we started two years ago, here we are, what, two billion pounds, two and a half, two point six billion dollars, the market cap two years on. And when people say to me, what do you think we can do with S4? I'm hesitant to lay out specifically what I think is possible, because as Morris and Charles used to say at Sarches, nothing is impossible, Bob. Nothing's impossible. Let's jump a little bit, and I'm going to come back to some of the WPP, but I'd really like to get into some influences. All of us, and certainly I know you do this, you learned a lot from every situation you were in and every person you encountered. What did you learn from Mark McCormick, the biggest sports agent of his time and the founder of IMG, and you spent some time with him very early in your career? He basically spent his life doing what he enjoyed doing. You know, he was a scratch golfer. I think he met Arnold Palmer at Wake Forest. Arnold Palmer was a 10% shareholder in IMG, which I think used to drive Jack Nicklaus nuts. Mark represented Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicklaus, and Gary Player, the big three, all at the same time. And I think Jack resented a little bit the fact that every time he played, Arnold was was interested in 10% of his winnings and earnings. But I think one of the principal things about Mark was that there was no defining line between work and business. I mean, what he did, he really enjoyed. It was fun. You know, he was a lawyer by training. He loved golf. And he applied his legal training to golf. I remember the case at the Harvard Business School 
that, that's how I met Mark. He was the subject of one of the cases in a course called Management of New Enterprises, MNE. And I remember that um, in that case study, it referred to how Wasserman, when he managed MCA, he managed talent. He, there was a famous uh, conductor, a band conductor, orchestra conductor, who he managed. And uh, at every concert, Wasserman made sure that his baton was there. And Mark used to say, you know, if Arnold Palmer had six and a half shoes or whatever it is, he would make sure that Arnold always had the right shoes at the tournament. And his attention to detail, that was the point. Not only your career should be around what you regard as being fun, but also attention to detail. Let's jump to the Saatchi brothers, Maurice and Charles. They, as you point out, created the biggest ad agency at the time, and they were the first big disruptors of the modern-day ad business. What did you learn from them? The interesting thing about them, they were not members of the IPA, the Incorporated Practitioners of Advertising, because there was a, an unwritten rule that you didn't pitch for each other's business if you were a member of the IPA. So they weren't members of the IPA because they pitched everybody's business, and they were disruptors. And what did I learn from them? I learned that nothing was impossible. I think that was one of Morris's favorite phrases. But again, you know, it was about fun. I mean, that era of Sarches in the 70s, that era from about 1977 to 85 was an incredible era. I mean, every week, campaign magazine would cover another account win. In those days, a million pounds was a lot of billings. And every week on a Thursday morning, the headlining campaign would be Sarches wins another one million, two million, three million pounds account. They were very ambitious. So I would say Nothing's impossible, global ambition, speed, persistence, all those sort of things were really important in a Saatchi framework. They did win an enormous amount of business. Were they winning in on ideas or on price? No, they were doing it on ideas. I mean, there was an aura. It came from the advertising that Charles was always credited with originating around the, the work they did for the Jaffa account or the Israeli the citrus fruit account. The Pregnant Man ad. And then, of course, Manhattan Landing for British Airways, that, that very uh, extravagant, expensive set of TV commercials for British Airways. I mean, there was a mystique, you know, the work they did for the Conservative Party, the relationship that Tim Bell forged with Margaret Thatcher, being credited with, you know, labor isn't working, that famous outdoor poster, that long, wavy line of... Uh, unemployed people and the headline labor isn't working that that resonated culturally to an incredible degree so it was the creative reputation of sarges that was so strong let's stay on ideas for a minute let's talk about what did you learn from someone who you fought with initially and then became your friend david ogilvy well david you know i met through the ogilvy deal in 89 he famously called me according to the financial times it was an odious little jerk Actually, it was odious little shit, but at that time, the Financial Times wouldn't print four-letter words. But we knew that he was going to be quite vitriolic when we launched our so-called fax attack. We launched it on a Friday evening, pressed the button on the, the bear hug letter, as it was called, to Ken Roman, who was the then chairman and CEO of Ogilvy. We knew that they were at an away day in upstate New York and we were sending it by fax. And it was also the day that they were moving the Ogilvy headquarters 
from one part of Manhattan to the other to Hell's Kitchen to their new building. The last paragraph of the letter contained an offer to David Ogilvy to become chairman of the combined company, of the combined WPP and Ogilvy company. And, um, of course, David, when Ken Roman told him about the fax attack or the bear hug letter, came out with this uh, odious little shit uh, comment. Never met me, and we'd never spoken a word together. So uh, I asked to see David, uh, and I met with him, and, you know, I mugged up on all of his books and went to see him uh, with our lawyer, Phil Reese, and one or two others. And I think I disarmed him a bit by being able to quote significant ch chunks of uh, his own writing from him. But the interesting thing about the meeting was I said to him during the course of the meeting, after we'd been talking for about 15 or 20 minutes, I said, have you seen our letter? And he said, yes, I've seen the letter. And I said, have you seen the last paragraph? And he said, what do you mean, the last paragraph? And I said, well, in that last paragraph, we suggested that you become chairman of the joint company. And he had been sent the letter, but Ken Roman or whoever had removed the last paragraph from the letter. So he was not aware of the fact that had been offered the chairmanship. Now, we knew there was friction between Ken Roman and David. You know, purportedly, they got on well, but we knew from our, our own intelligence that that was not the case. And that was one of the ways of unlocking that particular situation because David was keen on becoming chairman and he, he helped me a lot in those years uh, as chairman of the company. Oh, that's a great story. And I'm not sure I've heard it in that detail before. So let's jump to what did you learn from your dad, who I know you admired, loved so much, and was a uh, a businessman who really pulled it all together and built his career himself? Well, I would say everything. I mean, some of the elements that I mentioned in relation to Mark McCormack or the Saatchi brothers or indeed David Ogilvy, I mean, were elements that he taught me. Now, he was a retailer. He ran 750 radio and electrical stores in the, the 50s and 60s. Um, they, this was a division of an industrial holding company called Firth Cleveland. He owned a bit of stock in it, but really didn't have an ownership interest. But he treated the business as though it was his own. He worked seven days a week as a retailer. Uh, he would go to the office on a Saturday. I mean, he came from an Orthodox Jewish family, but he used to travel on the Sabbath. He would slightly lighter day on the Saturday, but on the Sundays... A bit of a full day. He had to leave school when he was 13 because he was one of six, a family of six. So you had to go out and earn a living. Um, despite the fact that he left school at such a tender age, he could recite the Talmud and Shakespeare. When I say recite, significant chunks, not you know one sentence like friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears, but I mean speeches and fantastic memory. Uh, for detail. He was also a, a very good musician. He was a violinist. He got a scholarship to the Royal School of Music when he was 13 as a violinist, but couldn't take it up because, again, he had to, to go off. So, you know, I go through all that because, you know, it sort of taught me a lot about the importance of education. I was a spoilt um, child from a Jewish background uh, in the ghetto, as I call it, of northwest London. I was born in Golders Green uh, in a block of flats called Queensborough Court, and we graduated to Mill Hill, which was also in northwest London. Uh, so um, I would say a traditional education. At, I started at Asmonean Prep School, which was a Jewish primary school, then went to Goodwin as we moved to Mill Hill, and then on to Haberdashers, and then, as you said, to Cambridge and, and Harvard. So my father uh, really 
made it possible for me to have an education that he didn't, and he valued it extremely highly and you know laid a path out for me, often described as having come from a fairly wealthy background, but I didn't really. My father really, really fought his way up and never had any of the benefits that he gave me. And my relationship with my father was very close. Uh, for example, when you and I were tussling over JWT, I would talk to my father probably four or five times a day about what was going on. He knew nothing about the business, but he knew about people. Maybe it's the fact that he had been in a salesman, a sales manager, had dealt with people in a consumer industry, selling radios and televisions and fridges and whatever. But he had a miracle facility to understand people, their emotions, objectives and likes and dislikes. So I learned a lot. But basically, he was a counselor. You did very well in the parent lottery. I did. More on math and magic right after this quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny. 
the warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math and Magic. Now let's hear more from my conversation with Sir Martin Sorrell. So let me jump a little bit from your dad. What kind of influence or, or what did you learn from your competitors in the advertising business? I mean, you've had legendary competitors, Maurice Levy, John Wren, Michael Roth, etc. Well, how did that shape you? They all had different characteristics. Michael Roth, you know, picked up, he was, a, I think, a non-executive director at IPG. He'd been in insurance business beforehand. But, you know, he's done a good job particularly in the latter years, but taken IPG from a very difficult position to a much stronger position. It's not one of the, the biggest of the, the big six, but they've done extremely well. And then Omnicom and John Wren, I don't think he has a strategic bone in his body, but he executes tactically extremely well. It's a bit more of a black box. There's very much less disclosure on Omnicom and the way that it works and others, and I think that works to its detriment, but it's key assets around BBDO, TBWA, DDB, amongst the finest, if not the finest creative assets, but maybe more of the traditional variety, and they haven't adapted strategically as much as perhaps they should have done. Publicis, um, I think strategically very strong. Morris Levy took what was a very small agency, a French agency, and he built the business phenomenally well and strategically strong. So if Omnicom was more about tactics and strategy, I think Publicis was more about strategy than tactics. So the answer to your question is, you know, you learn different things from different people. Let's move a little bit to probably the biggest disruption of your life and mine, which was the emergence of the internet. Suddenly we have digital advertising, we have data. I mean, here you are today. S4 is focused on that as the future. How did you see that initially? And what surprised you about the way it turned out? Well, I I, I think there are two buckets here. I mean, one is the geographical bucket. I think, you know, WPP, the Saatchi model was about globalization. It goes back to Ted Levitt and his article in the Harvard Business Review in 1983, I think it was in October of 83, where he laid out this theory that consumers are going to consume everything in the same way everywhere. I mean, WPP was about the continued growth of globalization. But the other part of it, the other bucket, it was the technology bucket. And we started to see that 95, 96, 97. Uh, I think I remember being interviewed by Harvard Business Review, and we're talking about the role of the internet around 1997, I think it was. And we started to build our business around technology. And when I left in 2018, I, you know, we it was very difficult to calculate what the true digital 
uh, share of the business uh, there was at WP, but we calculated it around 40%. We set an objective to grow it by 1% a year, its share of our business by 1% a year. What am I surprised about? Well, I'm surprised about the fact that we're now seeing a little bit of the dismantling of globalization and this friction with the US and China. And then on the web, you know, you always underestimated the speed at which this was going to change. And if I have regrets, it would be that we didn't move further faster at WPP to uh, adapt to the technological development. We moved fast enough on the geographical side. You know, we had 20% of the Chinese market, 50% of the Indian market. But what we're seeing now is the potential growth of two technology systems and the friction around Huawei, the friction around TikTok are emblematic of the desire of the, of the, of the US to have its technological system and the desire of the Chinese to have their technological system and then we may even have a third system. You know, you see Yandex wanting to buy a bank and, you know, we may have a third Russian-based system. So this makes it much more complex from a geographical point of view and, of course, from a technological point of view. So changing from analog to digital has been exceptionally difficult and you almost have, I mean, with the advertising holding companies, they're not fit for purpose anymore. The market has changed. They're past their sell-by dates. You know, coming back to where we started our relationship, that was about consolidation. I think there should be deconsolidation now. Let's jump to S4. You said you're focusing on the holy trinity, digital content, yeah. programmatic ad delivery, and first-party data. Tell me exactly how you see that and how you're putting it together. Well, we say we've got four basic principles. Firstly, we're focused, as I say, this is a growth model. We think that that what markets concentrate on and private equity and everybody else is total shareholder return. It's true, which which includes share price and, and dividends, etc. But essentially, the driver of TSR now is like-for-like like top-line growth. Not to the detriment of margin. Margin is still important, but it's not as balanced as it used to be, and it's really more about top-line growth. That's number one. Number two is we have this holy trinity model of first-party data driving the creation of digital advertising content, and programmatic. So that's the, the Holy Trinity. The third basic operating principle is faster, better, cheaper. Agility, the key corporate attribute. So agility, and then better means understanding the digital ecosystem. That is Google, Facebook, Amazon, Tencent, Alibaba, TikTok, Apple, Microsoft, Adobe, Salesforce, Oracle, IBM, SAP, Pinterest, Twitter, Snap, LG, Samsung, Xiaomi, Baidu, iHeartRadio, Epic. Understanding all those companies and understanding how the balance is changing between the platforms, between the hardware companies and the software companies. And then the last fourth principle is unitary structure. Earnouts don't work. You have to bring together people into a fully integrated structure. It doesn't work to have people separated by earnouts. You know, we're interested, Bob, in, at S4 in people, not in people who want to sell out. We're interested in people who want to buy in to the idea of building a new age, new era advertising and marketing services model and a, and a model that disrupts the old. I mean, there's a missionary zeal here to disrupt the old. As I said, we think... That model is past its sell-by date. It has to change. Let's jump for a minute to you. 
You have strong opinions. You always, since I've known you, have a strong not, point of not view. Me. Go- not me. <laughs> Jeff Bezos famously talks about disagree and commit. How does dissent fit into a company that you manage? Well, I think, you know, today, you know, every day we have a, a meeting for a half an hour or an hour with our top eight people in, in our company. We talk about people. We talk about uh, our clients. We talk about finances. Everybody expresses their view, and then we make up our minds about where we're going to go. So uh, you people do have different points of view. We were talking yesterday. There were differences of view, but we hammered it out, and we, we came up with what we thought was the, was the best point of view, given the fact we're trying to build a unitary company. That makes us very different to the holding company model, where it is by its nature fragmented and diffuse. And so this is really important in terms of that fourth principle of unitary structure. So you can have dissent. And look, good people are by nature difficult. Average people by nature cooperative, you know, because they they cooperate because they're average. Now, that's a dangerous thing to say because, you know, average people think in order to be good, they should be difficult. But getting great people who are team players is very difficult. Those are the exceptional people. And I think, you know, as for we do have people who are team players and they are exceptional in that they are extremely good at what they do. They are entrepreneurial and therefore are by nature, going back to your question, full of dissent and they have different views about how to do it, but they're coming together and they're bound together by this mission to create the new new age, new era model and to disrupt the old. We have a point to prove, Bob, and, and the, the point we're trying to prove is the model we're coming up with is a different one, uniquely positioned for today's times. So you're dealing with first-party data. It's quite different than the third-party data that's out there. There are three big pools of first-party data from the big digital giants. Do you think the government steps in to break up that control of that first-party data? Well, be careful what you wish for. The GDPR legislation in Europe really has made those three, Google, Facebook, Amazon, if those ones you're referring even more powerful. So it hasn't really hindered them because the small and medium-sized companies are not coming at it, you know, to try and compete with them as perhaps the regulators in, in Europe wanted. I, I'm not sure that increased regulation or splitting them up is the answer. I, I think they have responded. I think Facebook has responded. I think Google has responded. Twitter's responded. Amazon responded. As they've crossed a trillion dollars in terms of market cap, they obviously attract a lot of regulatory attention. And with power comes responsibility. For example, Facebook, they will ban political advertising a little before the election, but they've hired 35,000 people to monitor content. They've changed the algorithms. They've got rid of some of the the extreme groups, the boogaloo groups and things like that. So they have made change. Google have banned political advertising. Twitter have done the same. So they are responding. Some people would say not enough. I don't think boycotts get you very far. I think the best way to deal with situations like this is like the WFA have done or the ANA have done just recently in relation to hate speech is engage with the platforms effectively. What you do is you firmly say what you think you need and work with them. The other thing I think is really important is that these platforms are the engines of entrepreneurship in the West. It's 60 to 70% of the ad revenues of Google and Facebook and Amazon come from small and medium-sized businesses. 
And so be careful what you wish for. I'm not wishing. I'm asking. No, no, no. I'm not, not, <laughs> not you, generic you. You be careful because these these companies are generating opportunities for small and medium-sized businesses, which, as Jack Ma says, is the engine room of the economy and creates a lot of employment. So let's talk a little bit, of, just a second before we finish up. And obviously, we're on a podcast, so I'm going to ask about podcasting. You know, it was video for so long. It's been search. It's been social. And suddenly, audio has its moment in podcasting. I mean, in our company, although ad revenue is down, we announced in second quarter our ad revenue in podcasting was up 100%. We're racing quickly to build this. What do you think of podcasts? Well, I think another good way of our clients developing their media programming, if you like, and another good way to engage with consumers Now, whether it becomes mainstream or not is another question. It's a bit like influencer marketing, you know, in terms of content. I see influencers being a subset of content and the development and creation of content. So I think important, but not mainstream necessarily. Which is probably not what you wanted to hear, but... No, 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 no. Look, I'm interested in your opinion, and it is, we're on the... It's probably the only thing right now we're on the front end of, and uh, reminds me back at the days I went to AOL in the mid-90s, and I was at Century 21 Real Estate briefly, and I remember someone who was very smart said, I, I know why they want you, but I can't imagine why you'd want to leave Century 21 for AOL, and that's, what, that's <laughs> how little people thought of the future of the internet. Fortunately, things turned out differently. Hey, we end each episode by focusing on on math and magic, the analytics and the creative sides of marketing. And you have this unique perspective. Usually we ask people about people who are analytical or creative. In your case, I want to ask you about past or present. If you had to pick an agency that you thought was the best math agency, all about analytics, which one would you give that to? Well, I have to say Mighty Hive. Okay which is part of S4, okay. I have to say that. Just to broaden it, I'd say, I would say Essence would be the one that I, you know, going back on the math side of it, I would say Essence and Mighty Hive. So. Okay, so let's flip to the other side. What's the greatest creative agency, the magic? I think Sarch is in its early days. Obviously, Media Monks today, which is the other part of the content part of S4. But if I went back in history, I think Sarch is from when I was there, from 77 and before I was there, it was probably even better. But, you know, when I was there, when I knew it well, from 77 through to 85, outstanding. Sir Martin, this has been fantastic. You have wonderful stories and you're continuing to build your legacy and continuing to stay at the forefront of what's going on. Thanks for joining us and thanks for sharing no, thank you, Bob. I, I loved it. Great fun and good, good to catch up with you again. Well, we were caught up over the years, but we go back to 1987. Seven, 1987. That, that seems like yesterday to me, but I guess it was a while ago. <laughs> I can still see you with Sid Scheinberg and telling me I wasn't elected. That's very funny. Good luck, by the way, okay. on everything new. God bless you. Here are a few things I picked up in my conversation with Sir Martin. One, pay close attention to your adversaries. As Sir Martin says, you can learn something valuable from every encounter, even with your competitors. By paying close attention to rivals like David Ogilvie, he learned that there can be various strategies that lead to a successful company. Two, dissent 
is an important tool. There's a difference between what Sir Martin refers to as average people who stick to the status quo and team players who are willing to disagree to aid in company growth. Although team players might be difficult, they're more successful because their way of thinking is naturally entrepreneurial. Three, nothing is impossible. When asked what S4 is capable of, Sir Martin hesitates to answer because he doesn't want to hinder its potential. He picked up this philosophy from the Saatchi brothers, whose key to success wasn't the size of their accounts, but their limitless ideas. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts.